Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Al spent five years planning his murder. He couldn't have stuffed it up more, really. Part of his planning was that he had hired a whole lot of books from the library about murder and how to get away with it. Welcome to another episode of Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. In this podcast, we talk to people connected in one way or another to New Zealand's most notorious crimes. And in this episode, we're going right back to 1977 and the murder of Betty Benning. The details of this case were so bizarre, the movie producer, Felita Lacey, decided to turn it into a black comedy, which is called How to Murder Your Wife. It was a case that, uh, or a crime that took place in 1977, and I think that we felt that enough distance had passed. You know, the couple didn't have any children, um, so we felt that we could take a few liberties with it in terms of of the humour in it. And really, the humour in it came from the fact that the story itself was just so bizarre. You know, when I sort of originally looked at it, you know, I sort of went, God, if we pitch this as a fictional story, People would just go, no, it's too farcical. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe that any of this could take place. So it was kind of that approach and that truth to it that made us go, you know what? It's just so weird. It's kind of funny. Do, do you um, remember how you, how sort of the story got on your radar? Absolutely. Um, John Bannis, who is is our senior writer at Screen Time, actually rang me once and he said, look. But I'd just love you to check out Alf Benning. He said, I just remember, I remember this case from years ago. And he said, see if you can dig anything up about it. And so I did a bit of a Google search. And as I started reading, I sort of went, oh, okay, this is pretty unusual. So I rang um, Mark Everett, who was the detective who investigated the case at the time. And he was just like, oh, well, <laughs> come and have a chat to me about that one. <laughs> mm. And um, and so we sat down, and the more I learned about it, the more I just went, this is just the most unusual thing I've ever heard in my life. And I just went immediately, I said, oh, my God, we could make something really crazy with this. you know. And so we brought Mark Everett on as a consultant. And what, I, what really intrigued me about the story was, you know, Alf spent five years planning his murder to his wife and he did it and 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 he couldn't have stuffed it up more really if he had actually wanted to get away with it which he did and part of his planning was that he had hired a whole lot of books from the library about murder and how to get away with it and so when the police started <laughs> boy oh boy yeah when the police started investigating the crime they found these books by, on his bedside table with you know passages underlined through the books and so that really was the impetus, I guess. And because the story takes over such a long period of time, you know, I mean, we started with the story 
think, five years before the actual murder took place. Um, and because it takes place over such a long time, and it's all about his kind of the decision to to actually plan to murder his wife and then the motivation for it and then how he went about planning it, um, that we felt that as books were one of his primary research tools, that we would write the film in, in chapters like a book. And so we actually wrote it from Alf's perspective, typing his memoirs of his plans to murder. Um, and and it was really fun. Uh, I, and that's a terrible thing to say about murder, but it, I mean, but it was very historical. And I think it was just, it was fun from a creative perspective because we could sort of really look at it and go, well, well, what do we want to do with the story? Because it's so crazy, you know. There's so many different ways you could portray it, but but the only way that it felt like we could do the story and tell it with any sort of justice was to take that approach. So um, where does this story begin? So the story for us really begins, um, Alf and Betty Benning um, were very different. They were both in their second marriage together and they didn't like each other very much. Elizabeth or Betty Benning, she um, you know, was a church-going, upstanding member of her church. Um, she was a very large, um, formidable-looking lady and Alf was this teeny, tiny, diminutive little man who loved going to the dog races and loved, um, he liked going to Carmen Rupe's venues in, in Wellington at the time. I think it was called the Purple Onion was the one he liked to hang out at. So he betted on the races and, and he um, worked for the SPCA um, at the time, um, often collecting up you know, stray cats from the streets and he experimented at home actually with um, gassing them. And then he fell in love. He rescued a dog called Shet, which was a little key sound, and he fell in love with it. And Betty hated the dog. She also hated him. And it sort of turned into this bizarre love triangle, which was already a very, very toxic relationship. Sorry, hang um, on. The, the, the love triangle involving the dog? Yes. I'm not suggesting he was... No, no, but, but he was dog, jealous? <laughs> She was she was jealous. She, she wanted to get rid of the dog, and he refused to get rid of the dog. And he fell in love with it, and that was his life. And and by this stage, they had already. She was making demands on him from her lawyer for extra house money each week. They had literally divided the house. They were in separate rooms. They had divided the house into like different viewing times to watch TV, different times to be in the kitchen. You know, so they they were in a horrific and dysfunctional relationship. And I think he felt that his only choice, and for whatever reason is beyond me, given that he'd actually already been married before, so it's not like, you know, divorce was not necessarily an option to him, but he decided that the only way to, to get on with his life was to get rid of her, and so he set about plotting it. So we started the story from his, I guess, initial motivation for why he wanted to do it and what sort of triggered him to, to get into it. Then we kind of followed the story through his plotting and tried to really build up in the external picture the world that both of them were living in, their external environments and the people that they interacted with. And Speaking of the motive, it's, it's funny that someone could be jealous of somebody who they couldn't stand. Well, I don't think she was necessarily jealous of him. I think she was just, I guess it was more she was jealous of the dog and she wanted the dog to go. She didn't like the dog mm. and he refused it. And, and you know, he had, he just, you know, he was besotted by, by Shep. Um, <laughs> Boy. <laughs> yeah, and, and it just spiralled and he started making these plans. He started experimenting 
the bizarre thing is, is, is too, is that you know he had been a grave digger at one point in the Quarry Cemetery, which was actually just across the road from their, their house, and he could have, you know, if he if he had buried her in the cemetery, which was the detectives' first concern when they first suspected that he had killed her, they thought, oh God, he'll buried her in the cemetery and we'll never find her. But he didn't. He chose to bury her in his backyard and plant an apple tree on top of her. Mm. He wrapped her in newspaper, so it also had the date of, of, <sighs> of when he committed the crime on the paper. And he had borrowed, you know, um, a wheelbarrow because his wheelbarrow wasn't big enough to fit her in. So he'd borrowed a wheelbarrow from his next door neighbour. Um, and he just did all sorts of silly things. You know, he started making up stories um, about where she had gone um, and, you know, her concerned friend who, who would turn up to the house, you know, to try and check on Betty. His sort of stories about her whereabouts became more and more outlandish and eventually one of her friends went to the police and raised concerns until until a police officer was sent around to, to check the situation and um, which was Mark Everett and he had he had just come off another case where the offender had burnt the clothing and the and the belongings of the, his, the, his victim and when he turned up to Alf Benning's place Alf was standing in the backyard over an incinerator and he just went oh god here we go again and so very quickly it, it sort of didn't take him long to um bring Alf in and get a very unusual confession from him. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, Philly, did you cover how he actually did the crime? We created our version of it, yes. Okay. But w- so what do you think happened? Well, we believe that he strangled her and that, and he stabbed her. He said that he stabbed her, but he said it was self-defence because she attacked him with a knife. We don't necessarily believe that she attacked him with a knife because he had planned this for so long you know, over a five-year period. But, look, we'll never know the absolute truth of that. So tell me about the uh, the interviews with this cop, Everett, once he actually brought, brought him in. Oh, look, Mark is a great guy, I think. Um, he he was actually running civil aviation, the Civil Aviation Authority by the time I met him. He remembered the case explicitly because it was so bizarre. And he was just great, you know, he... he came on board, he could understand our creative intentions, he understood what we were trying to achieve, and he was just great. He, you know, he would sort of talk talk us through everything. He walked through, you know, once we had our set, he would walk through the property and sort of explain how the house was laid out, how, you know, the demeanour of Alf, what, you know, and, and what he understood of Betty. Um, yeah, can you tell us a bit about those, um, the questioning that Everett did of Alf? Yes. He said it was very, very strange. Um, he said once he brought Alf in, and by this stage, you know, they, they were in the process of, of... When they initially interviewed him, they interviewed him, I think it was for something like 12 hours, and Alf was just digging his toes in, and he said, you know, he would do things like every now and then he would sort of, like, jump on the floor and roll around and throw a fit. Mark described it sort of something like, a, you know, an insect lying on the floor waving his arms in the air, almost like a baby going, I didn't kill my wife. You think I killed my wife? I didn't kill my wife. You know, and he said, so it was just very, very bizarre. And they held him as long as they could. And while they were holding him, they were obviously gathering evidence from around the house. And then eventually he called in his lawyer, which was Mike Dungay, who obviously is a very notorious or infamous criminal defence lawyer 
in Wellington at the time, um, who we've also subsequently did a television series about. And from then the case, you know, went to court. And then, of course, he got sentenced. It was just very bizarre. <laughs> and um, and he didn't seem like the murder in kind. Look, he seemed very diminutive. I mean, everybody just sort of described him as a very diminutive, gentle little man. He was a bit of a conundrum. I didn't get the sense that there were people who felt they knew him particularly well. He certainly had a lifestyle that was probably quite unusual for someone of his age and at that time, I think. And, yeah, I mean, people sort of described him as someone that, you know, that they just wouldn't expect this to have happened from, but he did. Yeah. And what about Betty? What was she like? Um, She was described to me as a very kind of overbearing, very righteous or self-righteous lady who loved her church group, who, you know, regularly attended bingo, but who, you know, who had resorted to using a lawyer to asking him for, um, you know, extra pocket money um, and things like that. So I got the sense that basically their relationship was was vindictive and toxic. Yeah. Um, and, and they were certainly not a well-matched pair. Did um, So you say that, you know, when he eventually admitted that he was responsible, he had a story that she had attacked him. Did he ever sort of recant from that, you know, when it was, well, maybe we should no. talk, you know, so he stuck with it. And, and what was yeah. the trial like? Was it, um, you know, was it a close thing? The trial, well, no, he was found guilty and obviously sent to prison for a very long time. We actually wondered whether he might have quite liked prison because I believe that once he went into prison, he became the librarian in prison and was fed three square meals a day and was able to pass his time away. I think he got released in the end on compassionate grounds because of his failing health. There's also this weird sort of aspect to it, which is that after the the murder or the or the death, Elf started sort of living the high life as much as was possible yeah. in Wellington in the 70s. I think he did. He was known for inviting Carmen Rupe's staff from the Purple Onion up to his house and having parties, and I think that was probably one of the first things that his neighbours noticed was the unusual behaviour subsequent. You know, it wasn't like he tried to hide anything or, you know, or, or resort into himself. He actually started sort of living it up, and I think that that drew the attention of his neighbours, certainly. Yeah, and that that sort of living it up involved uh, another sort of famous member of the Wellington community in the late 70s as well. It's Carmen Rupe, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was, I mean, that was another thing that, that I guess really struck us when we, again, when we first looked at the story was, you know, you're looking at Alf and Betty and then here's Carmen, who's one of the most, you know, famous transvestites, you know, from the gay community in Wellington in the 1970s and people I've spoken to spoke so fondly of her and the fact that, you know, but also that she was very tough but fair. And, of course, Mike Bungay. So their story or their journey, you know, involves some incredible characters from our history. And there's also Peter Doon, which is a uh, a name that people might remember. Yeah, who became police commissioner. How was he involved? He was involved in um, the case. I think he was one of the investigating team on the case. Mm. Tell us about these books, because it would be hard to mount a self-defence defence when you've got these particular books out of the library. What exactly did he get out? Uh, There were books, I believe, on dismemberment, um, books on how to get away with murder, 
we got given a list of some of them when we were doing our research into the production. So they were basically all books that in some way or another gave advice on how to either dismember a body or get away with murder. Mm. And and he had underlined passages in them. I believe there might have also been uh, books on defence as well, criminal defence. Okay. And the apple tree is a pretty interesting detail as well. I presume that they dug that up and... Would have wanted to examine yeah. body, yeah. Yeah, and the police said that that was actually that was horrific, as you can imagine. It was very grisly because he had, he had dismembered her and she was wrapped in six pieces and buried under the apple tree. And I think the detective said it was just a very very grisly scene. So then you had the job a few years later of turning it into a feature. Um, mm. Were you happy with how it turned out? By the way. Um, I, to be honest, I was absolutely delighted. Yeah. I just thought it was such a, you know, the team really came together. It was a creative piece of work. If you, if you put the murder and the horror of it aside, it was a really, really well-told story. And it was a creative piece of work. It's something that, you know, people have done this before. Black Jack's done black comedies on true crimes before. You know, it's not it's not an unknown thing to do, but I just thought... The cast and crew were amazing. What the production design came up with, you know, I just felt that everybody really came together on it. And both Geraldine, the team, um, and Simon O'Connor were just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So was that... Their performances. Was that Geraldine Brophy? Geraldine Brophy and Simon O'Connor was Alf Benning. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm looking at a still shot uh, of it, and he looks like he's really captured a a character. Look, we, we were so surprised because we actually, with that production, we were really worried about being able to find our bedding because he's such a specific look as well as, you know, the physicality of their relationship is so specific too, as well as the performance of, of who this person is. And we had actually cast in the States and in the UK as well as in Australia and New Zealand. And we were getting really concerned because a lot of the actors that we were, were that were being put up to us in that kind of age group and were were really tall. And that wasn't Alf. And then we luckily Simon was prepared to do an audition and as soon as we saw his audition we just went, Oh my God, that's us <laughs> there's just no question. He was just all his mannerisms, I guess, and his um, what he brought to that character was exactly what we had envisioned Alf would be. Um, and likewise, Geraldine on on the other side. You know, the, the film got won the best telly movie um, at the C21 Drama Awards in London, and it won a number of awards at the New York International Film Festival, as well as for, you know, best performance, but a number of awards. I think we won about five there. Amazing. Um, so we were, really, we were really thrilled. We were really proud of it. And, and I know it does seem a little bit odd and, and perhaps a little bit callous to treat something as a comedy, but I think when you look at the, the passage of time and the approach, I think people who watch it will understand why. And look, we were we were also we were really thrilled that that, that TBNZ were prepared to take a risk, and so would so were New Zealand on air. You know, I mean, I think you know mixing creativity with storytelling, and particularly when you're dealing with true stories, is a complex thing to do because there's a responsibility to the truth, as well as a responsibility to your creative process. And you know, we we were we were pushing the boat a bit, and I was really amazed and, and thrilled that you know that TVNZ were pre- prepared to take the risk with it. I think they could see what potential the potential it had, 
and that they chose to support us in doing that. And it just felt fun because it felt like we had freedom creatively, even though we had to honour the truth. But the truth was already laid out in this amazing story for us from a film perspective. So it was our job to respect that truth, but to turn it into something that, that people could watch as well. You probably won't know the answer, but the question is, what happened to the dog? We don't know. <laughs> um, I know. We, we wish we could have found out, and we don't know the answer. We kind of created an ending, but we don't know. I actually, it, Someone did say to me that, that one of the SPCA workers took the dog, but I don't know if there's any truth in that. Okay. The thing that was very uh, interesting, too, is that what we thought was sort of slightly ironic was when we went to the film festival in New York to the awards there, we came out of the theatre after they'd done the screening of it and um, a woman was walking her key farm just outside the theatre <laughs> and we sort of stopped and went, well that's quite unusual because there's not that many key farms around so, I don't know it was just an ironic moment Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. For more Just Like It, you can visit the RNZ website or find the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or actually wherever you find your podcasts. Just click the Follow tab and you'll never miss an episode. There are plenty of other great RNZ podcasts. Look out for Matangiraya and Voices. 